If you have a Bible, you can open to Job chapter 42, the last chapter of Job. It's just right before the Psalms begin. Uh, The text is also printed in the bulletin for you, and there's some Bibles available on the back table if you need. You know what a non sequitur is? Um, It just basically means uh, something that does not follow, that there's no... Uh, no sequence, no pattern, no logical order, no necessity, uh, one thing following another. So I'll explain that. Resurrection is a non sequitur. Resurrection is a non sequitur. Um, it's the great non sequitur. Probably some of you are going to joke afterwards that this sermon was a non sequitur. Um, <clears throat> we need to recover the idea that resurrection is uh, a non sequitur. We need to recover that idea in order to pr- appreciate the full significance of what the resurrection is. Because words can lose their significance, right? We, we know this from experience. Words, words lose their significance over time through constant use, and Christians talk about the resurrection quite a bit. <clears throat> the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is right there at the heart of Christianity. It's why we gather every week on the first day of the week. It's the day that Jesus rose from the dead, as we read in our gospel reading from Luke 24. Um, and our resurrection Uh, linked as it is to Christ's and guaranteed by Christ's. Uh, Our resurrection is our great hope for the future, for our future, and for our eternal life with God, for our relationship with God that will last forever. So the resurrection is uh, is a common part of our uh, conversations in the church, but maybe that means it can easily sort of fade into the background like wallpaper, nice wallpaper, but eventually stop paying real close attention to it, or we lose a sense of the, the strangeness of it, the stark peculiarity of the resurrection. So this is going to be a strangeness sermon. If it doesn't make sense to you, that's why. <laughs> it's um, uh, stark, the, the, the resurrection is starkly peculiar. It's a non sequitur. That is, the idea of resurrection does not necessarily or logically follow from death. Um, resurrection is not natural. It's not one of the laws of physics that dead bodies come back to life, and everybody expects that, and everybody knows that. Uh, There's nothing about death itself, intrinsic to death itself, that that leads to resurrection. Death has no intrinsic potential for resurrection in itself. Resurrection is not the normal end result of some process that's triggered by death. You don't look at a dead body and closely inspect it, say, hmm, yep, there it is. Here it comes. Set a timer for resurrection. Suffering and death, uh, all too common experience for us in this life, suffering and death in and of themselves don't go anywhere. In and of themselves, they do not go anywhere. They're a dead end, so to speak. Uh, In and of themselves, there's no meaning in suffering and death. They make no promise of restoration. They just take. They just hurt. And you just lose suffering and death viewed in and of themselves. If you want things like hope, if you want things like meaning, significance, purpose, restoration, eternal life, then you need a God who is free to love, free to work, and free to reveal. A God who can take even things, these dead-end things like suffering and death, and through the complete non-sequitur of resurrection, the complete workaround, so to speak, uh, change everything and infuse meaning and hope where there was none before. And that really is the point of the book 
of Job, the glorious non sequitur ending of the book of Job, uh, changes everything so that now we can see, we can see things like suffering and death in a new light. In the New Testament, uh, James, in his letter in chapter 5, he talks about our being able to have a new approach to suffering because of what we see in Job's story. He talks about having, um, having patience through suffering because you've heard the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. What's the purpose of the Lord in Job's story? Uh, it's a complicated book. It's a favorite of many people, but it's kind of hard to understand. What's the purpose of the Lord that we see in Job's story that James is referring to? It's the same purpose that we ultimately see in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the same purpose on which we base our hope for our resurrection on the last day, which enables us to see something new in our suffering and death and endure those things with patience. So we're going to talk about the purpose of the Lord as we see it at the end of uh, Job this morning. Let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, as we um, consider your word, we pray for your help. We pray that you would uh, make it so that we do not sit over your word as judges, but that we would receive your word and even submit to it, because it is good news for us. It's hard for us to believe that. We pray that you would help us to believe, help our weak faith through your Holy Spirit now as we hear your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going um, to skip some of the middle. There's just so much going on in Job that um, is amazing and would take too long to cover. So we're going to kind of read the first and last parts of Job 42. And Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, and therefore I repent. My, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And then down to verse 12, <clears throat> and the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hapuk. And in all the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons... And his son's sons, four generations. And Job died, an old man and full of days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the realities of suffering and death are the biggest hang-ups to faith in God. You come across people who have a hard time putting faith in God, hard time believing Christianity, trusting Christ. Suffering and death, it's one of the biggest hang-ups for people. Humanity wrestles with nothing more deeply than suffering and death and how God himself can be good while allowing it to continue in this world and in my life and in my 
the lives of the, the ones I love, there's nothing better on the subject than, than Job. There's nothing better on suffering and death than the book of Job. It's a gripping story. Its emotions are honest. Its language is subtle and poetic and beautiful. And it has these profound insights. And, and what it reveals about God is unique. It really is unique. Job is meant to be universally relatable. There's nothing that sort of plunks him down anywhere particular in the history of Israel as God is dealing with these people throughout the Old Testament. He's sort of this universal guy. He's a, he's a generic human being. In fact, <clears throat> I think there's a real sense in which Job was a candidate for the new Adam, uh, the new head of humanity, to do what the first Adam failed to do, which is cling to God in the face of temptation to sin. Um, all suffering is a test. All suffering can be a temptation, a test of your faith, whether a person will love and honor and exalt and obey God in the face of their suffering. And nobody ever gets it right. Nobody ever gets it right. Job came closer than anybody. But he didn't get it right. I mean, nobody has a worse story of suffering than Job. He went from the highest of heights to the absolute depths. And the thing that characterized him, the thing that characterized his identity, which is called out a few times in the early chapters, was his relationship with God. He was blameless and upright, and he feared God, and he turned away from evil. He'd been blessed by God with, um, I mean, the numbers are sort of symbolic, uh, the perfect family, seven sons and three daughters, right? I mean, that's would have constituted a perfect family in that culture, and those, those numbers are a bit symbolic. So seven sons and three daughters, blessed by God with a perfect family, and he's a lord. He's a, he's a lord. 7,000 sheep he started off with, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Um, he cared for the spiritual wealth, welfare of his family, cared for his family far better than Adam cared for the spiritual welfare of his wife. So, seeing this uh, righteous person, God set him forth for testing. God's the one who did this. The real question that the book asks at the beginning is, does, does Job love God for his gifts? For all the blessings? For the ways in which uh, his life has been good and nice and easy? Does he love God for those reasons, or does he love God for himself? If everything was taken away from him, would he still love and serve God, or would the suffering make him bitter against God and, and thereby expose his real reasons for his piety? Sorry, we can't get into all the questions of God's sovereignty here that are raised in the first couple of chapters of Job or what role Satan has in heaven or in our lives on a regular basis, but God granted Satan permission to test Job. Hard, hard stuff to consider, but it's part of the story. God granted Satan permission to test him, first by taking away almost everything that he had. And it's the most uh, wrenching thing that you've ever read. I think the only other time I've preached on Job, I preached from that passage and couldn't help but weep as I was reading it. It's, um, it's wrenching. All of his livestock were stolen or destroyed. 
all of his servants killed, except for the ones who barely escaped with their lives in order to come back and report all the losses, and just loss after loss immediately. And then he finds out that all his children who were together in his oldest son's house having a birthday party for him, uh, all of them had died too. So Job mourned, and he remained faithful at this point. He remained faithful, and he blessed the Lord. And then Satan was given permission to go after him more directly than that even. And Satan uh, was given permission to strike him with loathsome sores from head to toe, covered his whole body, just racked with pain. And Job's own wife tempted him to curse God and die, end this relationship, and just end it all. And Job started to crack. That's what you can... What you can see in the language, the commentators pointed out, if it's harder for us to see, maybe in the English. But Job starts to crack. He, get, he gets impatient with his wife. He calls her a fool. And it becomes questionable whether he believes what he's really saying. Whether he really believes in his heart what his lips are saying. He's not sinning with his lips. But maybe there's something reserved in his heart. And he enters into a week of silent mourning and his three friends come and, and are present with him in that silence. And they're doing great at that point, right? Um, but when he speaks again, he curses the day of his, his birth. He curses the day that he was born in his bitterness. The majority of the rest of the book then is a poetic dialogue with his friends where you feel this emotional upheaval, the deep questionings of his pain. I mean, we feel these things when we read through it, the spiritual dismay and a depression, the wrestling with God, real wrestling over the evils that are in his life that God brought upon him. And we know Job isn't suffering because of his sin. We know that. He didn't do something wrong, and this isn't his punishment for it. We know Job isn't suffering because of his sin, but his friends insist that he must be and say, well, if you would just repent of your sin, God would fix all this and you'd get back to your high station in life. And he goes down the path of defensiveness, defensiveness, insisting on his own righteousness, ultimately insisting on it over and against God's righteousness. If I'm righteous here, and God's bringing this stuff on my head, maybe God's not righteous. He disbelieves God's willingness to engage with him. And he thinks God is mighty and distant and unapproachable and won't come and speak with him. He feels stuck. He feels frustrated. He's unable to to process his guilt or his pain or whatever it is that he's feeling. He's unable to process and articulate his complaint against God for fear that God will just get angrier, angrier at him and just wipe him out. He demands vindication, and he demands God explain himself. He wonders whether God didn't just create us to cruelly toy with us, give us the hope of a good life, and then dash it all away. And he wonders these things. I wonder these things. People wonder these things. He grows desperate for a mediator to reconcile God and himself together in righteousness, but he thinks of that mediator as someone 
who can actually call God to task. Because he can't. It's pretty honest stuff. Maybe you can resonate with some of it. You get little blips of hope through the book. You get little blips of true confession of faith. He resolves to trust the one who attacks him as if he were his enemy. Even though he's attacking me, I'm going to trust him. He says, I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue my case with God. Though he slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. And then in chapter 19, he says, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes behold, and not another. So he has faith that there will be a restoration, even a resurrection. It's not a pure faith. His isn't. But he has some faith. He isn't the new Adam we were looking for. He's not the perfect human being who truly loves God for himself, who can withstand the onslaught of everything that the devil has to throw at him, who holds up under the terrible trials of the deepest sufferings and death itself and remains faithful to God all the way to the end, through and through. He's not that guy. If only there were such a guy. If only there were a righteous sufferer. And there is. His name is Jesus, and he's the new Adam that we needed. He walked with God through all the miseries and all the temptations of this life. He remained faithful even to the point of death on a cross. And God raised him from the dead to be the head of a new humanity, to live with God forever. <clears throat> but back to Job for now. Um, Job turns out to be a sinner, just like the rest of us. He is relatable, after all. And that's really helpful, because when we look at his story, we're seeing how God engages with people like us. We look at Job and all his wrestlings, it's easy to see ourselves in it. In fact, Job's name... Um, I think it's a little bit difficult for commentators to translate, uh, but, but the best that I saw um, is that it comes from some ancient words for, uh, where is the father? His, no, his name, the name Job means, where is the father? And that's the biggest question that we have during our suffering. Where is the father? After all Job's complaints, out of the blue, actually out of the whirlwind, God shows up. Job's demanded an audience. He's wondered desperately, consistently, if God would speak with him. And he does. God reveals himself to Job. He doesn't legitimize Job's line of questioning by answering all of his questions, not directly anyway. Job was bitter because Job viewed himself as God's judge. And God overturns that idea rather decisively, and Job shuts his mouth. You see this in chapters 38 through 41, the interactions there. But the amazing thing is that God shows up. It's incredible. He condescends to speak with Job, who's just been questioning his righteousness. 
He condescends to speak with him. He reveals himself in his glory, not just briefly, but with an extended engagement. He looks to correct Job, and really, really, he looks to invite him into a deeper, more majestic relationship where Job knows God better than he ever has before. Job is comforted not by getting divine answers to the questions that he had throughout the book. He's comforted by the divine presence. He does find comfort in God's showing up. Francis Anderson is a commentator. He says that the Lord has spoken to Job. That fact alone is marvelous beyond all wonder that God would show up and talk with a guy like this. So Job complained against God. He sought to justify himself over and against God. God could have wiped him out. God could have ignored him and just left him in the misery of his own bitterness against God. That's that's a sequitur. That would have followed. So angry at Job that he's gone or just ignore him and leave him to his suffering. But do you see the purpose of the Lord that James talks about? The purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Do you see that in in the book of Job? God responds to Job's angry, self-righteous, rebellious complaints with self-revelation and renewed relationship. That's how God responds to Job. That's a non sequitur if ever there was one. God is absolutely free to love sinners and to make himself known to sinners for relationship, even though we don't deserve it, even though we reject him bitterly. And that is what changes Job. He changes here at the end. We read about it in chapter 42, and uh, he changes his perspective on all his sufferings. He says at the beginning, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And in verse 3, he's referring to something God had asked him at the beginning of that conversation. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? He says, that was me. I didn't know what I was talking about. And then God, he quotes God again, here, and I will speak. I'll question you, and you make it known to me. We're going to have this conversation about who is God here and what it means to be God and what it means to be a human being. It's going to totally change every, everything uh, that you think about all of this. And Job says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, uh, this, this verse 6 is, um, I think, a, a difficult one to translate. The best one, the, I, my Hebrew is terrible, so I rely on the commentators, which is what we should all do. They, uh, <clears throat> they say the best way to understand this is, Therefore, instead of I despise myself, it should be I'm sorry for what I said. And I repent, I change my mind about dust and ashes. I I change my mind about what it means to suffer. He's saying God's gracious self-revelation has given him a new perspective on his own sufferings. Rather than as an opportunity to build a case against God, that's, that's how we view our sufferings. 
We use them to build a case against God. Rather than that, he now sees his sufferings as affording him an opportunity to know God because God came to him in the middle of all this. He's been made to see his own self-justification. He's been made to see how he was wrong to question God the way that he did and how God responded graciously in spite of it. He'd been... Uh, He had previously believed God to be capricious and his sufferings unjust and unwarranted and evidence of God's lack of care to him and how he's at least beginning to see that his sufferings were necessary to strip away, to expose his false piety and to persuade him that God loves him regardless of his false piety. Without the... um, the vision of God, he'd be stuck with meaningless sufferings and death. He'd be stuck in the cycle of bitter questioning. But with the vision of God, his suffering, and his, it really is a death symbolically, right? His, his sufferings are a death. His suffering and death have been transformed. They're no longer a dead end. He brought, God brought a symbolic, at least, resurrection out of all of this. <clears throat> Job's res, uh, restoration at the end of the the book, isn't meant to um, pretend away his losses or to paper over his losses. Uh, It might seem kind of like a cheap reparation being made. You know, you lost your ten children. Here, let's just replace them. It's not not meant for that reason. Um, It's a picture of resurrection. It's a picture of resurrection. The Old Testament saints... <clears throat> the, the language used of family and generations and life that would go on after my death, that was a picture of resurrection. And the fact that Job got to see four generations of his family, that's for them, it's a, it's a promise that there's going to be life after I die. And they look to their own resurrection. But this, this idea of family and children, it really was for them a picture of their own resurrection. Life will will happen after I die. It will continue after I die. They look ultimately to the, uh, the eternal life that we find in God at the resurrection, the new heavens and the new earth. But, um, but Job is given that as a restoration. He's given resurrection as part of his res- uh, restoration. His sufferings have become a place where he met God, not just groping around in the dark. He met God in his sufferings. He came to know God more truly than he had known him before. And that's what all of our sufferings are, only in light of the resurrection. They only have meaning. They only have purpose because of the resurrection. But the resurrection changes everything. You, you have better than the Lord's word coming out of a tornado. You have the word of God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, risen from the dead the God-man. You know who God is. Jesus is the presence of God with us. He's the revelation of God to us. He's come into the world in the midst of all our sufferings. He didn't stay distant. He didn't remain aloof from our sufferings. He came to meet us where we are in our sufferings, and he suffered himself. In fact, he came into the world as a human for that very purpose, to suffer and to die for the sake of love. 
to remain faithful to God through his suffering and his, and his death and to be able to relate to us in all of our sufferings and our death. He has suffered more than anyone ever, more even than Job. Jesus has suffered more than anyone. And because of his resurrection, which we celebrate today, because of his rising from the dead, his sufferings and his death have been transformed into the place where we are all able to meet God and come to know God and enter into a real relationship with God and be reconciled to God and live with God forever. His resurrection turned his sufferings and death into that for us, a meeting place, an opportunity to come to know God. And all our sufferings are now chances to do the same thing, draw nearer to God in Christ, to come to know this one who has suffered all things out of his love for us, to learn about his divine love and to listen to his self-revelation. Because of his resurrection, we, we change our minds about the meaning of suffering and death. We begin to see suffering and death as places to meet Jesus Christ. As, as things that are made to serve our own restoration and our own resurrection, ultimately. God was free to overturn Job's sufferings and restore him to greatness. God was free to override and transform Jesus' death by raising him from the dead. God is free to love you, to reveal himself to you in spite of who you are. He's free to promise you a resurrection like Christ's and to grant you eternal life in relationship with himself, even though that's a complete non sequitur. It does not follow from your sin, from your sufferings, and from your death. But it's the Lord's compassionate and merciful purpose. It's his will. Resurrection is his will. Resurrection is his power. And he can do all things, and no purpose of his can be thwarted. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we pray that you would keep a vision of Jesus Christ, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, before our eyes always as the one who has tasted death for everyone and so knows what it's like to go through a life of temptation, to be unfaithful to you, yet he remained faithful to you. We pray that the vision of who Christ is through his sufferings and through his death and in his resurrection would fill our hearts with comfort and peace and joy and patience, even if that patience is long-suffering, the miseries of this world, this life. Uh, this world is not always a pleasant place to be, and our faith is tested we pray that you would help us through Jesus Christ to see all the miseries, all the tests as opportunities for fellowship with you to come to know you more deeply and more truly than we have before. Reveal yourself to us in our sufferings, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.